0: A few weeks ago, we uh, introduced this sermon series going through uh, Peter's letters, and uh, it wasn't uh, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't my intent to spend this long in the first chapter, let alone the first 12 verses, but here we are, uh, part three, and we're still in the first 12 verses. <laughs> uh, but I assure you that we're going to make some more progress after uh, this week. But uh, as we've been going through it, of course, we've been uh, seeing just how much theology Peter likes to pack in his verses, especially as we noted a couple weeks ago, uh, just how much theology Peter has put into his salutations. Uh, we are talking about First Peter 1, 1, and 2, and then we jump down and we talk through, 10, through verses 10, 11, and 12 as well. And we were just noting how much Peter is packing into these verses, that right off the bat he is seeking to align the hearts and the minds of these believers, these believers scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he's wanting to, and he's seeking to uh, envelop them with a, such a sense of who they are in Christ. We noted in verse 2, if you remember, that they are elect exiles according to the pre-arrangement of God. That from the beginning of time, God had arranged that they would be part of his family, part of his kingdom. That it wasn't by accident that they are part of his church. It wasn't by accident at all. It was part of God's pre-arrangement. And I think it's fitting. To me, it fits Peter's Personality, as we know it from the scriptures, that he would seek to uh, try to uh, put as much as he can, as much meaning, as much weight, as much theology, as much meaning as he can in every single word that he can. It kind of fits, I think, what we know of Peter. But as he begins to compose this letter to these churches, he is absolutely certain And he's actually wanting to make them absolutely certain, these churches, and actually by us too, by proxy as we're reading it, absolutely certain of the hope that they can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them absolutely certain of it. Not just the hope that they can have, but the hope that they do have right now. If you remember, we've been noting that these believers are going through an incredibly tormenting time. This letter was likely written during the early days of the persecution of believers under Emperor Nero. And here you can imagine that these scattered believers also believe that Peter is writing to Gentile believers. This is why he is noting especially that and he's making sure that they know that they are part of this arrangement of God to have called out ones unto his name. He wants them to be sure that, yes, you might be, uh, quote, not a part of the covenant that has been passed down through the centuries. But guess what? It has always been God's plan to have you a part of his kingdom. He's reminding of that. And he's also reminding him here that, yes, even though now that you have been brought into this wonderful kingdom by God's abundant mercy, you have hope. And do not lose that hope. Yeah, I can imagine, I can think of these who have put their faith in this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, And then this faith has brought them into a world of hurt and heartache now. Their faith has actually made them hurt worse as this persecution begins to be more fierce, more ferocious, more intense. So it's no wonder then that Peter, seeking to convey this hope, he writes with such buoyancy, such wonderful encouragement. Because he wants them to consider where they are. And he wants them to consider that their hope that they have they don't have to question it. They don't have to worry about where they are. Because they are where God wants them. They are right where Jesus has them. Such is why Peter is here. Is taking up to remind them. As I love the way he words it in verse 3. Of his, as he says there. Of this lively hope. Such is why I want to speak to uh, this evening. Our living, breathing hope. That we can have. I want to speak to you about that this evening uh, concerning this living, breathing hope through three very important truths I hope that you will take to heart tonight. The first comes in that third verse. Number one, the certainty of our hope. Look again at verse three. Peter writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's beginning this letter. He's beginning this sort of... He's getting into sort of the meat of what he wants to convey to these churches. And as he does so, he begins by inviting them and inciting them to praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be this God. Why? Who? Because he has said, as he says here, has begotten us again to a lively hope. Now that phrase... As you might imagine, it's full of lots and lots of incredible truths for us. So let's just kind of break it down uh, word by word a little bit. So begotten literally means to produce again or to be born again. It is a word, actually. You might think that this is a word that appears a lot because we know that uh, begotten and born again appears a lot in the New Testament. Actually, but this specific Greek word only appears twice in your New Testament. It appears here. And actually, the only other appearance of it... Yes, you guessed it. It's in verse 23 of the same chapter where Peter says being born again, not uh, verse 23, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Born again there is our same word. It's the same word here. Both instances coming from Peter and of course again. Back in verse 3 means again, begotten again, born again unto a lively hope. So put together, and Peter is here suggesting that this power of Jesus Christ is a reproducing power. The power of the gospel reproduces a people who are anew, seized, as he says here, by this lively hope. We are born again unto a lively hope. And there's another great phrase. I love how he words this. A lively hope. Literally meaning it's active. It's breathing. This hope breathes. Think about that. Put that in your mind's eye. As Peter is reminding them that their hope isn't just some far off theory. Their hope isn't just some vague nebulous truth. No, guess what? Church, your hope is lively. Your hope breathes. That's how certain it is. That's how real it is. These scared, these tired, these exhausted, these worn out weary believers here. They are being reminded that the hope that they have. is not just some, some amorphous thing. Not just some uh, thing that they are trying to just uh, trust in and believe in. That's just some uh, weird nebulous truth. It's a living, breathing reality. And why is that? Because their hope was a person. Their hope was a lively, alive person. Their hope was and is alive. That's what Peter is getting them to see. He's getting, he's reminding them. That, hey, bless, we can praise God. Yes, even in this time of questioning and doubt and disturbance and distress. Why? Because our hope is alive. It lives and breathes. This is, a, this is a truth that always speaks to me. It's a, it's, a, it's a truth that, in my opinion, makes Christianity the most remarkable religion in the whole entire world. Beyond any other thing, beyond any other spiritual system that you can ever have, is, is it's this right here. Christianity doesn't just offer you a, a sort of a set of truths or a set of beliefs that we try to cling to or hold on to. It doesn't offer just a system of religion, so to speak, by which we can find meaning or purpose or by which we can uh, de- uh, design our entire lives around. It doesn't just give us sort of a program of rules that we can follow and that we can try to live up to. No, the crux of Christianity is that it's a belief in a living, breathing person who came and died so that dying people could live and breathe eternally. That's Christianity. He's reminding them of that here. You have a lively hope, an active hope, a breathing hope. This... This always speaks to me. We don't have a dead religion. We don't have a dead faith. Our faith is active. It's breathing. Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite preachers, as you might know, I quote him a lot. He has this wonderful passage. Listen to what he says. The object, the object of the Christian's faith is not a proposition. It is not a dogma nor a truth, but A person. And the act of faith is not an acceptance of a given fact, just a resurrection or any other thing as true. But it's a reaching out of the whole nature to him and a resting upon him. I love that. It's a resting upon a person. And an even greater passage. This is another passage. I I found this passage many, many years ago. It's by a lecturer named Richard Trench. And he gave this wonderful lecture talking about this very same idea that the person of our faith. And listen to what he says here. This paragraph always speaks to me. Listen to what he says. The prerogative of our Christian faith, the secret of its strength, is that all which it has and all which it offers is laid up in a living person. This is what has made it strong, while so much else has proved weak, that it has Christ for a middle point, that it is not a, is, is not a circumference without a sinner, that it is not merely a deliverance, but a deliverer, That is not a redemption only, but a redeemer. For oh, how vast is the difference between submitting ourselves to a complex of rules and casting ourselves upon a living and beating heart between accepting a system and cleaving to a person. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that so much cuz this is the gospel. This is the truth of all truths. We don't just have a complex set of rules that we're hoping to live by and abide by. That's not just what Peter's saying. Peter is here saying, "You have a lively hope, a living and breathing and beating heart," as Richard there says. That's how certain your hope is. Your hope lives and breathes because your hope is a person who died for your sins and came back to life again for your salvation. Think about that too. Your hope, capital H hope, has a heart that beats. Has a heart that beats with blood that pumps through his veins. That's how real your hope is. And here Peter's reminding him of that. Through this wonderful, wonderful little phrase. That you have been begotten again. To a lively hope. And why can we be so certain about this? Because again, as Peter writes. It is by, as he says there. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This living hope. Died and he rose again. The hope of every Christian is living and breathing because Christ rose. He walked out of that grave, and of this Peter is so certain—certainty of your hope. You know what I find most fascinating about this verse here in verse three is uh, is just how perfectly it sort of encapsulates Peter's entire testimony. I I see so much of, as Peter is writing here in this letter, I cannot help but think of Peter the man, as we learn about him, all in the Gospels. Especially as we went through the Gospel of Mark. I just can't help but escape all of the instances I see of Peter. Because guess what? Peter's life too was born again, he was begotten again, transformed in heart and mind and will. By what? By the resurrection of Jesus You can read Mark chapter 16. Actually, read all chapters of Mark in just one sitting and notice all the little instances of Peter speaking before he thinks, (laughs) being so impetuous, being so self-certain. And then at the end, when he has denied his Lord, remember who, remember, I, I just love that truth out of Mark, I think it's Mark 16, 7. Where he's denied Jesus, Peter is probably in the dumps. And who does the angel call out and make sure? Hey, guess who I want to see in Galilee? Guess who Jesus really wants to see? Go tell the other disciples and Peter. Peter was transformed by this resurrection. He's not writing out of some sort of ethereal thing. He's not writing and making it up because he was on some sort of opioid and he's just out of his mind. He's just writing out of his head. He is writing because he saw the living Christ and he's saying, guess what? This is real. And I can't but help but say that your hope is living and active and alive because guess what? I saw him. I touched him. I was there with him. He was begotten again by this lively hope. This is what happened in Peter's own life. And he's describing here, hey, church in Asia Minor, all these churches, this is what can still happen in your life by faith. And guess what church, Stonington Baptist Church, this is what happens, yes, even to this day. Hearts are transformed by the power of the resurrection because we have a hope that is alive He has never stopped being alive. He has never stopped interceding on your behalf. Your life and mine, as he says here, is begotten again because of the certainty of hope that we have in Jesus' resurrection. And this hope, we didn't do anything to earn. We didn't do anything to get or achieve. We didn't deserve it at all. As he says here, look at that wonderful phrase. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, he has done all of these things. He has made our hope so certain out of what cause? Abundant mercy. Pure mercy alone. Pure gift alone, this is what leads us to this certainty of our hope. And he is so certain of it here. You can see it in Peter's writing. I can just feel it as he's composing these words. I want you to be sure of this, church. (laughs) Their immediate life, their immediate circumstances probably looked nothing like hopeful. Nothing that pertained to hopefulness, but he is uh, making sure that they here, this church, they could hope on because their hope was in Jesus, who was alive, who was living and breathing. Number one, the certainty of our hope. Number two, comes from verses four and five, the continuity of our hope. The continuity of our hope. Look at verse four. Peter writes, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So you see here, that it's not just that our hope is certain. Here, Peter writes that our hope is continuous, it's constant, it's persistent. It doesn't fade away as he writes there. Think about what this must have meant for this church, to this the conglomerate of churchgoers who had uh, so uh, surely witnessed so many different things in their lives come to an end. As they are being scattered by these persecutions, they are being scattered to the ends of the earth, so to speak. What Peter is offering here is something that cannot be taken away. As they are losing possessions, as they are losing their livelihoods, as they are maybe even losing loved ones. Think about what Peter is reminding them of. You have an inheritance, a hope, a hope that is continuous, that cannot be taken away. A hope, as he says there, that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade. And what is this hope that is continuous? It's wrapped up in that word, verse 4. An inheritance. Literally it means a possession. A blessing. Here what Peter is saying therefore in these verses that these believers in Asia Minor here. They were in possession of a gift that could never be taken away. No matter what man did unto them, no matter what the persecutions might have assailed them, no matter what, it could not be soiled, it could not decay, it could not be ripped from their hands. Why? Because it's an inheritance that is reserved and kept, as he says here, by nothing short of the power of God. Look at it again, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God. This inheritance, it doesn't fade, it is eternal, because it is kept by this power of God. Now I love those two, those two words, reserved and kept there in verses 4 and 5. Because literally they have the same meaning. And they both uh, evoke a very specific picture because both of them mean to guard. Reserved literally means to guard or to take care of. And kept literally means to guard or to protect by military guard. So you can get the sense here of what Peter is trying to evoke by these words, that your hope is so certain. Why? It's because literally the God of all things, the one who rules and reigns over the entire cosmos is guarding your hope. He's guarding your possession. He is guarding you, his prized people. He's keeping you. He's reserving you. He is guarding your hope. This is why you can hope on no matter what the seasons have. Because your ultimate eternal inheritance cannot be affected by anything that happens here on this earth. It's guarded by God. It's guarded by omnipotence. All power in his hands is keeping and guarding this hope. So why can you be... You can be so certain of the continuity of your hope because of the one who is keeping it. Jesus, Christ, the righteous, the king, the lord of all things. The savior, the deliverer. I I love this. I love how Peter is wording this. He's getting them to see. Their hope, it cannot be taken away. Because the one who is their hope... Is the one who is keeping and sustaining their hope. Jesus Himself. And that no matter what the present circumstances, your hope in heaven is perennial. It's evergreen because your hope is the person of heaven. It's not just something, again, as we noted earlier, it's not just some complex of rules or some system, some tenet, some truth. It's a person. Jesus Christ that is the continuity of our hope this incorruptible inheritance and what is that by the way what is this incorruptible inheritance well notice verse five again that we are kept we are guarded by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time salvation there ...is a word which is meaning to convey the ultimate salvation of our souls... Not just salvation from sins, but ultimate, consummate deliverance of God's people and of God's church. It's indicative of this conclusive salvation of all of God's people at the end of all things, when Christ and his church are finally at last united, never more to be separated. And here is what you see what he's saying? That's your ultimate inheritance. And guess what? That can never be affected, it can never be changed. No matter what is going on right here, right now in front of us, that inheritance cannot be altered. For a church that was going through a world of hurt during these persecutions, imagine what that must have meant to them. That as right before their eyes was pain and violence and hatred because of their faith. And think about what that can mean for us in 2020. (laughs) Our inheritance is that. The uniting of God, of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Never more again to be separated by anything. That cannot be changed by whoever gets voted in in November. That cannot be changed by uh, whatever happens in this country. By whatever happens in this world. It is inheritance that is guarded and kept. It is reserved by God in his omnipotent grace. By his abundant mercy. Your hope is continuous. Lastly, look at verses 6 through 9. Number 3. We have the certainty of our hope. The continuity of our hope. And number 3, the cultivation of our hope. Because I notice what Peter says here. We've been, he's been buoyantly writing, encouraging them in this living hope, this, uh, this everlasting hope. And notice what he says: wherein ye greatly rejoice. We rejoice in that. This, uh, this idea that one day we will be consummated with Christ in this ultimate deliverance. And notice he, he says: though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, ye love. And whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You can imagine up till now verse 5 Peter's readers have been tracking very very closely with what he's been saying everything that he's been saying has been speaking directly to them and they've been saying yeah yeah okay we got it they've been reminded that their hope is certain and continuous and is this hope and of an inheritance that was gifted to them out of pure mercy and they cannot and it cannot be taken away but notice how what Peter says here In verses 6 through 9, and how this hope is cultivated. How is this hope nurtured and grown and matured? Well, definitely, I think, not in the way that these readers expected another way this this church perhaps imagined it because he proceeds to edify them and remind them that they can rejoice yes even in heaviness and manifold temptations why is because these it is because through these times of heaviness and temptation and through as he says there the trial of your faith that their faith is refined and purified The trial of your faith. Verse 7. Being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire. Might be founded to praise and honor and glory. At the appearing of Jesus Christ. These verses. They are abounding with meaning. For these believers. It must have been a hard thing to come to grips with. That their present circumstances were not by accident. Like these believers too. We are now in a season of heaviness and temptation of trial. We can relate, I think, very much in very many ways to these believers in this time as Peter is writing to them. And even though as Peter is admitting that their season, uh, their current season is a season of heaviness. He is encouraging them. Because notice what he says there. He says in verse 6 again. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season. If need be you are in heaviness. Season. Literally means short time. Though for a short time. 2020 hasn't felt short. Have you seen all those memes. <laughs> that go across on Facebook. Where it's like we're entering now year 5 of 2020. <laughs> because it's felt like that. It's October. It's felt like we've been in lockdown for five years. It's been seven months. Is that right? Yeah, seven months. It's felt like a lot longer. It hasn't felt like a season. It hasn't felt like a short time. I, I think about these believers in this church. Because when you're in the heat of heaviness, nothing feels like a short time. Nothing feels like a season. It feels like it's lasting forever. And we can, we can cry along with the psalmist David, Oh Lord, how long? And Peter's reminding them that in light of this perennial eternal hope, this, this is a blip on the radar. This is a little footnote In the history of eternity, of what will ultimately matter. And he says that through the endurance of this heavy season, your faith, church, is being proved as genuine. That's that beautiful imagery we have in verse 7. It's the picture. The picture he evokes is of a metallurgist, of a blacksmith. Who is proving, who is trying with fire the preciousness of the alloy that he has in his hands. By burning away all the dross, all the impurities. You have that block of gold. And at first it appears dungy and grimy. And you put it in the heat, into the most intense fire. And when you bring it out, it's gold that has... Much more immeasurable worth and value. But it is through the heat that that happens. It is through the fire that that happens. So it is with our faith. So it is with our experiences that these seasons of suffering, these seasons of heaviness and trial, temptation, they are the means by which our souls are being examined by the Holy One, God Himself, and our faith is being proved as genuine. As he says there, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's being proved by this examination process. Therefore, we can rejoice, as he says here, wherein we greatly rejoice. Yes, even in this short, heavy season, we can rejoice. Because you and I are tried with fire. Not by accident, not by happenstance, but by a sovereign blacksmith. <laughs> by a sovereign metallurgist who puts souls into the furnace for a season. I love what Martin Luther, Martin Luther says as he's commenting on First Peter. He says this, therefore God throws us into the midst of the fire, that is, into suffering and shame and calamity, so that we may become more and more purified until we die. That's what he's doing. He's purifying us. And I think too, as he's putting us into the fire, I remind of that wonderful song. (laughs) It was actually playing earlier as I was testing out the audio for tonight. (laughs) Um, It's a song by Hillsong. You may have heard the words to it. It's called Another in the Fire. It's a wonderful song. I love the words to it. It always gets me. They talk about there's another in the fire. It's evoking the story from Daniel 3 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego they've been thrown into the furnace And then suddenly Nebuchadnezzar, he peers into the furnace and he says, what? There's a fourth figure in the flames. As the song says, there is another in the fire who never lets me go. (laughs) We are put in the furnace by the blacksmith. But guess what? This is an altogether different blacksmith because guess what? He puts himself in there too with us. He is with us in the seasons of heaviness and suffering and trial. He was with them now in this time of the church, as Peter's reminding them. They have a living act of hope, and He is with us now, even today, even this night. All of these things are so, Peter says, to refine us, to make us more like Christ Himself. I can't help but also notice verse 8. And further emphasize this sort of personal attachment Peter has with what he's writing. Notice verse 8 again where he says, Whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. To me there's an inescapable link between verse 8 and the scene in John twenty twenty nine. Remember John twenty twenty nine. That's the scene of Thomas's confession of the resurrected Christ. Well, let me read you that verse. And you'll, you'll notice, perhaps, the connecting points in the phraseology between these two passages. John 20, 29, Jesus, uh, or twenty twenty eight, Thomas says that he has just put his hands in Christ, in his side, into his, into his side, in his hands. And Thomas says, and Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus follows up that confession with Thomas. Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Notice what he says here and back in 1 Peter 1.8. Whom having not seen, ye love. And whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with unexpressible joy. Full of glory. You can see what he's Doing here. He's reminding these. Believers. Of the tremendous comfort they could have. That as their faith is cultivated. As their faith is grown. As it's being matured. And refined. Through this suffering. They could be so certain. Of the continuity of their hope. Because they have it. In the gospel of the resurrected Lord. Though having not seen. They can be sure of. As he writes here. This. Unspeakable joy. You and I. Have you thought about this? We possess. We are the inheritors of a joy. Which cannot be even fully articulated. It's unspeakable. It can't even be fully expressed. Because it's a gift. We cannot even fully comprehend it. It's the gospel. Yes. It's the hope. It's the hope that we have. That the living one. The creator. Came and died. For dying we can even wrap our heads around it. And Peter's saying, this is the hope you've been born again unto. It's the hope that he's growing you into. See, Peter, he's reminding them of the gospel. Of the certainty of it, of the continuity of it, of their confidence in it. That their experiences, this church's experiences are not outside the bounds of God's power and promise. That even now they could be confident of God's work in them through the spirit. As he says there in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. All of this is working unto that ultimate deliverance of God. Who would ultimately, finally, and one day deliver your souls from this wretched world of sin into his presence they can be certain of that and they can be certain of that in the now because their hope was living and breathing let us pray